Hi and welcome to my latest podcast. I'm super excited you're joining me as we go through the Gospel of John and we look at Jesus through the eyes of one of his best friends and we come across some incredible theological gems, some wonderful stories and just this amazing perspective that's really different from the other three Gospel writers. So buckle up and join me, Paul White, as we saunter through the book of John. Good morning saunterers, welcome to another grey day. However, God is with us, the sun is shining somewhere (laughs) and we're going to have a good day. We're going to pray, invite him to help us. So Lord, today we give this day to you, we invite you to be the light and the joy in our day today. And Lord, let us know you, let us walk with you, let us experience your goodness and your kindness and your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Pat and Mike. I'm sure it's windy up on the Isle of Portland. So we are in um, John, again, looking through John's Gospel. We're looking at chapter 12 today. And this has one of the most beautiful stories, I think, in the Bible and it's one that the other, all the other, I think I'm right in saying all the other gospel writers include a version of this story. And it's profound. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Good morning, Sally and George and Fran. Great to see you guys. And so she wiped her feet with his hair. So she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, which is an amazing story is an amazing little kind of snapshot of something which has some cultural relevance, but also violates the culture immensely. So there's this meal going on and the the custom and still is in some countries was that the women serve the men and the men have their important conversations. It does seem that the meal was in order in honour, rather, of Jesus's incredible miracle of raising Lazarus. I'm sure everyone who knew Lazarus was so grateful to Jesus. And they've all come to this house. I think Matthew says that it was the house of Simon the leper. Um, It seems to be, John says, he came to the house where Lazarus was. So it doesn't kind of mean that it wasn't Simon the leper's house. But it does seem that Martha is busy with the food preparations. And I think Martha did that kind of thing incredibly well. I think she was probably um, renowned in her community for being the lady who got things done and made events happen really, really well and was phenomenal hostess. And so um, here they are and Lazarus and Jesus are reclining at the table with the guests and you know they kind of laid out and prop themselves up on one shoulder which I think is an awful way of trying to eat anyway that's what they did and they these that was their normal I've been to cultures where we sit on the floor but it's kind of cross-legged and you sit on a mat a big carpet and the food is all laid out in the middle that's fine that's cool 
but I think lying down is a little bit of a weird one for me. It's like having a meal in bed and you get end up anyway, let's not go there. So right, do you, so um here's Jesus, he's the honoured guest. Mary's obviously there her sister's there it's her brother who's been raised from the dead and she comes in with this pound of expensive ointment now um, Anna Jackson produced some actual nard at kids camp and I wasn't especially in love with the smell of it and it does seem that there's some question as to what this actual ointment or this actual spice that was what was given the smell and the loveliness to this ointment was um nard seemed a bit kind of earthy and rooty to me but a bit like kind of not quite swede but <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't what i would like to be kind of anointed with but anyway so whatever it is is incredibly valuable and that's the point it has a particular smell <clears throat> and it's incredibly valuable and she's got a whole pound of it in a jar and she pours it over Jesus's feet she anoints his feet with it now some um different accounts talk of a woman coming into a room and smashing a jar made of alabaster which is full of this ointment and does the same thing it's possible that it happened twice in the life of Jesus um on two different on two separate occasions but for customarily the the host would take um, a bowl round one of the servants would take a bowl round to the guests and wash their feet and maybe put a little bit of oint um a little bit of perfume on their head to make everybody smell nice and savory because i mean if you just think about the <laughs> biology of it if you're lying down and your head is like about no more than 18 inches away from someone else's feet if they haven't washed their feet that's going to be a pretty unfriendly meal and so the custom was to wash the feet and put the perfume on the head and Mary is going one better she's literally anointing Jesus and, and pouring out this precious ointment on his feet so it's a, a a precious thing on what would be considered to be a humble part of the body but that's because she highly values Jesus and she wants to completely honour him and even touching his feet is a sign of incredible honour. Um, so let's just read on a little bit. So she anoints his feet, wipes it with wipes her feet with her wipes his feet, sorry, with her hair, and the house is filled with the fragrance of this perfume. It doesn't <laughs> it seems to be slightly different to the one we smelt, which I, I think the house full of the smell of Swede wouldn't be particularly mem memorable. <laughs> but the house full of this incredibly expensive perfume was memorable. And verse four, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, we know about him. John reminds us he was the one who was about to betray him said why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii or denarii i don't know how you pronounce that denarii denarii anyway and given to the poor so it's about it's about a year's wages for a worker so it's quite a lot of money so why was this an ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor and he said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and he used to help himself to what was put in. So, sorry, having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So this is really interesting, isn't it? John's given us a little bit of insight. I don't know whether he knew that at the time that 
that Judas was saying these things or whether it was all found out subsequently, you know, after things played out the way they did. Um, but they obviously at some point discovered that J Judas was a thief. Well, Jesus would have known that. Jesus had insight into all of the guys really, really well and knew exactly what was going on. But he kept Judas on team, which is really interesting, isn't it? Even though he was difficult and he was not a blessing and ultimately would betray him, Jesus kept him on the team. I wonder why. Was it, I mean, obviously we know that his purpose was that he would, he needed someone, you know, this, the kind of plan of God uh, had a betrayer in it. And so someone was going to betray Jesus and it would be somebody that Jesus had trusted himself to and shared his life with for three years, which is makes it even harder, doesn't it? So anyway, so Judas is this um, thief. And so his comments about surely this could have been sold indicate where his heart's at. He's not caring about the poor. He just wants more money in the money bag so he can take more out for himself. And um, there is a lot of speculation about this. I think sometimes it goes one way, sometimes it goes the other. People argue one thing, one extreme, others argue another. <clears throat> there is no gift too, too great to lavish on Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean, however, that we should have lavish cathedrals and lavish church buildings. It costs zillions of pounds and doesn't mean that pastors should go around saying well you know nothing's too expensive for Jesus therefore nothing's too expensive for me I should have this lifestyle blah 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 uh, we need to watch where we go with the logic of this but actually what's happening here is something incredibly intimate incredibly lavish and very unselfconscious so Mary is not bothered about all the people in the room she seems to just be consumed with Jesus and wants to give herself fully to him, which is beautiful. And that is, to me, this is one of the most beautiful depictions of worship in the Bible. And there's another one, isn't there, where the wise men come to Jesus and they bring him their gifts and they put them before him. And it reminds us of that. Anyway, so Judas doesn't care about the poor. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial or the other reading of that is she's kept this for the day of my burial for the poor you will always have with you but you will not always have me and there's so much we could say one thing that strikes me is absolutely beautiful is when Mary and Jesus left that house Anyone who bumped into one of them and then the other would know they'd been together because they would smell the same. They smelt identical because Mary was covered in the things she'd covered Jesus in. And when we worship, we take on the fragrance of worship. We begin to smell like Jesus. And there is something about people who are devoted to worship. You can smell Jesus on their clothes. It's like, whoa, there's something. Mm, I don't know. I just like being around you. You kind of have a nice aroma. There's something about you. Anyway, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So this was the talk of the town. Lazarus, this guy they all seemed to know, had been raised from the dead. So they'd come to see Jesus, but they'd also come to see Lazarus. Whoa, yeah, he is alive. Oh, gosh, yeah. 
whom he'd raised from the dead. So chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So let's, let's not only kill the prophet, let's kill the people the prophet has healed and raised from the dead. Let's not just get rid of Jesus. Let's get rid of any evidence that he's done any good things. And you can imagine if they'd have killed Lazarus, then they'd have been thinking, right, where's that man who was born blind? We're going to get him next and pop him off because he's evidence backing up Jesus's outlandish claims. Right. Verse 12. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, we've talked about this prophecy. It's found in in Zechariah. Um, And this is a... Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. He would have known about it, but I don't know whether he was self-consciously thinking, Oh, quick, I've got to get a donkey. I've got to get a donkey. Excuse me. It seems that all that was planned. Matthew tells us that he instructed a couple of his disciples to go and find a donkey and they'd find one tied up and they were to take its colt, which was its young, um, its kind of foal, and bring that and Jesus would ride in on that. And so he came in on this donkey, this donkey's colt. It was like a young, unbroken animal. And Jesus comes in and is kind of embodying in a very interesting way the the march of triumph that roman generals did into a city into their home city or the capital city of 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 rome obviously they would come in with all the prisoners behind them that they and all the spoils of war and they'd give gifts and everything else and jesus is kind of embodying this and yet in a very humble way he's not riding on a white charger prancing through the streets but he's on his donkey is a cult it's a it's a humble animal it's a beast of burden it's not a glorious creature at all it's comical if anything um and so they're saying these words hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and they're all cheering and and some of this popularity is spiked by the has been elevated by the stories of Lazarus's um, miracle. He's now raised from the dead. And so his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they kind of, he's saying they didn't really fully understand the prophetic significance and how it tied in with the Old Testament scriptures until after the whole thing was said and done and after Jesus had been raised from the dead himself and glorified. Then then it all starts to compute. And I think very often it's like that, isn't it? With We, we see something happening, we understand it, later it's not like we understand the significance of it straight away but then as we reflect on it we think hold on a minute that's in the bible whoa hey i've just seen something whoa and so john and the other apostles were very much like that and i'm sure when they were in that sort of interim period of like waiting for the holy spirit to come and reflecting on the life of jesus and the things they'd seen they were putting two and two together and 
kind of understanding the significance of certain scriptures and so on. So the crowd had been with them. Uh, verse 17, the crowd that had been with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So they were continuing to tell the story. Obviously, you would. It would be, oh, did you hear about what happened? This guy, he'd been dead and four days he'd been in the tomb. Jesus, whoa, you know, and it would be the talk of the town, wouldn't it? And so they, in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they'd heard he'd done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone or the world has gone after him. So they're kind of thinking, we are in a proper problem here, guys. Everything we do is not working. This Jesus is going from strength to strength. The whole world is following him and they were becoming increasingly desperate. Interestingly, John, just back up, John gives us seven incredible signs that Jesus does and he calls them signs and the sign of Lazarus was sign number seven so you can go back through and see if you can spot those signs Jesus did but they were um, turning the water into wine was the first one healing the official son at Capernaum was the second one and you can uh, well you can go through it and have a look at those but that is also very interesting because they were very compelling signs that pointed to him truly being the messiah and the one the jews were hoping for so verse 20 then so the pharisees are getting desperate let's just say that and things are building up to a climax and you can tell you can see things are kind of gaining momentum and we know the story, obviously, so we know that's happening. But the Jews are not going to cope very well with this young, this imposter riding in on a donkey and everyone applauding him and throwing palm branches on the ground and their clothes and everything. Um, they're not going to cope with that. And neither is Rome, obviously. Sooner or later, the might of Rome is going to be rise up to quell any Jewish rebellion in Jerusalem. So verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who's from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Wow. So we don't really understand quite the significance of these Greeks coming to Jesus but it does seem that it's a trigger and it kind of makes him realize that his hour has come because the Greeks they um, are coming to him so they represent the Gentile world and they may well have been um, Greek believers who well they no doubt were people who lived in Greece but had become believers in God through the Jews around them and now they'd come to the temple for the feast 
And something about the timing of this, we've said before, haven't we, how Jesus was on a different time scale to everybody else, including his family and his disciples and the chief priests and the Jews and everyone else. But there are certain things that trigger events in Jesus's life. And it seems that he the coming the Greeks coming to him seems to be one of those. And he says these things, my t the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. It's like now I know that this is my time and then he then he explains some things he says some really deep profound spiritual truths here he says unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies and we know this we plant a seed of wheat in the ground we shake it out of the air and we plant it in the ground and it has to kind of disintegrate and change it's no longer it doesn't remain in the ground as a seed it has to die and become a plant and then it bears fruit and so it multiplies in its death and Jesus is saying this is a principle that is going to happen in my life this is going to be what happens with me if I I have to fall to the earth and die so that I can bear much fruit and then he expands that outwards and says actually same it is going to be for my disciples if anyone tries to cling on to this life and make this life all about this life you only live once and so on and so on <clears throat> if anyone tries to make that their thing actually life will escape them they won't get what they're looking for but actually if someone is prepared to follow me and lay down their life in the same way that I'm laying down my life then they'll find they will find eternal life and so if anyone serves me he must follow me and where I am there my, will be my servant also um, if anyone serves me the father will honor him so we're going to stick to Jesus like glue we're going to follow him around and the father will honor us God the father will honor us because we've honored his son right verse 27 now is my soul troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So let's just pause there a second. Jesus is suddenly refreshly kind of aware. And he knew all along, I'm sure, or he knew. Anyway, let's just say he knew at this time that he was going to um, have to die. And certainly things he'd said previously indicate that he knew that a while ago. But it's it suddenly the impact of it is hitting his soul he says now is my soul troubled my human my human being inside me is troubled i'm not liking the prospect of what's ahead of me i'm i'm troubled by it but he says, I can't dodge it. I, this, I've come to this hour for this very purpose. This is what my whole life has been all about. I can't dodge the bullet. And so then he says um, that 
the father spoke from heaven and people heard it and they thought, hold on a minute, is, what's going on? Is that an angel speaking to him or is it thunder I can hear? Oh, what's that? And Jesus is saying, listen, guys, this is for your benefit. You need to understand that God is speaking to me, but it's for your benefit. So you, again, you can hear this relationship between father and son. You can see it acting out. If anyone's got ears to hear, even in that thunder, what sounds like thunder, God is speaking. And people misunderstood it. They interpreted it from a natural point of view. Other people heard it clear enough to identify what God was saying. And I'm sure, again, that is all to do with where our heart is at. And so Jesus is saying this is the time for the judgment of the world and the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. So he's in, he's saying that actually the the world has been under the domination of a ruler who is about to be overcome and cast out. And he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So his death was going to be this incredible victory that liberated the earth from the grip of Satan, the prince of darkness, the prince of this world who has dominated this world since Adam and Eve relinquished authority and handed it over to him when they when they followed him rather than God. They became his servants and so the whole world was, the earth was plunged into a kind of, um, under the tyranny of sin and death. <clears throat> and so this, this death that Jesus is dreading, and he's talking about now being lifted up on a cross, and it seems the people he's talking to understand what he's talking about. This is going to be the greatest victory that has ever happened on this planet. This is going to be the most magnificent victory. And yet it it requires the Son of God to be like the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. There is nothing else like this. This is this is you could not make this up. This is the most profound um truth and the most profound stuff. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Then one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And that same invitation is pressing. It's really pressing and important to us to make the decision while we have life, while we're alive, while there's light in our eyes, to follow Jesus, to become sons of light, to make that choice. Good morning, Joan. And to follow him and surrender our lives to him. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So there's still this this hardcore of unbelief that Jesus is up against. And now he's done his, he's finished for today. He's hiding himself from the people. And, you know, it's, they've had their chance. Verse 38, so that the word might be spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Sorry, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, 
Who has believed what, what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. He, Isaiah, John is telling us, saw his glory, saw Jesus' glory. He saw ahead. That's what prophets do. They see ahead. They see what's coming. And Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. So he saw Jesus' glory. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is still a thing today. People refuse to believe in Jesus because they want to be popular. They want to be successful in this world. They want to have the kind of friends that they like, not the kind of riffraff that Jesus hangs around with. And it becomes a challenge. And so it's like, I don't want to follow Jesus. It's going to cost me too much. I don't want to go through that narrow way that he's talking about. I want to stay in my kind of comfort zone. And but actually what we're doing by doing that is we're making a choice. Now let's just listen to this final paragraph and then we'll then we'll finish. Verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to, to the world to judge, sorry, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So this is Jesus in his saviour role. He's coming now at this point, he's coming to lay down his life to save the world. And I said yesterday, if Jesus thinks we need saving from something so badly that he's prepared to die to make that happen, to make that possible. Whatever it is we need to be saved from must be pretty horrendous. If God has to leave heaven and come to earth to die to save us, my goodness, what is it he wants to save us from? And why would we choose that? Why would we choose to stay, yeah, become victims of whatever it is? Whoa. So here we go. So he says, I don't, I do not judge him for I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father tells me. So once again, Jesus is spelling it out. Guys, listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not speaking on my own account. I'm not making this stuff up. I've been sent by the Father. I'm going to save the world. But actually, do you know what? Even the very fact that I've come to lay my life down to save the world is an it's like the offer is now open and that in itself is a judgment. And I was just thinking this morning to 
to fail to make a choice to follow Jesus is to make a choice not to follow Jesus. I'm going to say that again, just in hope someone's listening to me. The failure to make a choice to follow Jesus or to accept his offer of eternal life. The failure to accept that, the failure to make a decision is a choice to not follow him, to not accept his offer. I had a reminder come through to tax the soul food van. I then I've had that reminder the, and I need to respond to that. I've done it now. I, I needed to respond to that because to not respond to it was to make a choice that would ultimately lead to me being fined. Do, do, do you know what I mean? So the choice is there. I need, it's a poor analogy, but Jesus has given us this incredible gift. He came to lay down his life to save the world. Let us say yes. Let us say Jesus what you did on the cross, let it count for me. Let all my sins be paid for by what you did in Jesus' name. Have an amazing day, everyone. Love you loads. Take care. Bye-bye.